0: Welcome to the East City Wesleyan Church podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And if you would like to learn more about East City Wesleyan Church, please go to ecw.org.nz for more information. Now, here's your podcast. Well, to each and every one of you and those tuning in online, I'd like to say welcome home. And I'm glad that you'd be joining us. And I have to give a special shout out this morning, especially thinking about the people who are away on holiday and they're joining us online. But we have a student that comes to youth every Friday night, and he's been joining us every Sunday night uh, on our YouTube channel to engage in our online services. So Liam, a shout-out for you, buddy. I'm glad you're joining us. So um, this morning as we kick off, we're in a series of God Speaks, how does God's upper story of what's going on in the heavenly realm and lower story, what you and I experience, how they intersect and interact. We're reading through all of Scripture through a story um, that that encaptures the Old Testament and the New Testament, written chronologically, and we're diving into these life-giving truths of Scripture to say, what does that tell me about God, and what does this mean for me, my relationship with the Lord? So I'm really excited about what God has revealed through familiar stories to a lot of you, new insights, new timings of it's God's living word, that we can read the same thing over and over and over again, and the Holy Spirit can use it to speak truth into our lives at any given point of time in this journey of life that we're in. So to kick us off this morning, I want to share with you um, something that was a challenge to me, but also a blessing. And, And one of those challenges is We were supposed to be on holiday in the United States right now. COVID had different plans and God had different plans. I I don't think God created COVID, but uh, we didn't get to go on holiday. And there's a tradition in our family that we like to celebrate what's called a golden birthday. And golden birthdays, so for instance, my birthday is on September 3rd. So I had my golden birthday when I turned three years old. You follow me? The logic. So a fun fact, three of our four children are born on the 10th of the month. Bizarre, right? So their golden birthdays have been on the 10th, uh, on on their 10th birthday. So my son Tate had his golden birthday this past week, turned 10 on the 10th of July. And, And we had big plans. We were going to be with family in the States. We were going to go to Kings Island Amusement Park in Cincinnati, Ohio. We were going to have a spectacular time and that all got shifted and changed as many of your plans have changed. Many people have been impacted. And there's worse things, you know, than a holiday canceled uh, right now in the world. But I, I asked him a few weeks ago, I said, buddy, what would you like to do for your birthday instead? He's like, well, Rainbow's End would be fun, but that's too much money. And, and I'm like, you're 10 years old. What do you, you know, okay. Um, and, and we're talking through things and different options. And he said, daddy, I'd love to go fishing with you. I was like, sweet, let's do it. You know, I was so excited about that. But I was really challenged by the fact that he said, because I've never caught a fish that we could take home and eat. I thought, I have failed as a parent. (laughs) I am a hunting, fishing, outdoorsman guru. I love this stuff. And the reality that my son is 10, and he never experienced one of the greatest joys in my life. Uh, of enjoying the outdoors, that so much of city uh, life for kids is a lot of times behind the screen, you know, behind the video game controller, behind the TV, and I thought, man, we have to make this happen. So his birthday wish was to catch a fish big enough to bring home for dinner. So up on the screen is uh, us fishing up in Paihe on Friday, and boy, did he catch one big enough to uh, bring home for dinner, and, and, and catch this. He outfished me three to zero. (laughs) I was like, this is not going to work out, son. You're going on your own. Um, And now, here's the thing. Where does this fit in this morning's sermon? I have no idea. (laughs) But it was an absolute blessing to get outside and enjoy time with my son and, and help create memories that literally will last forever. This is a photo that I'll look at for many years to come of the first big fish that my son ever caught. And last night for dinner, he's sitting there, and he's taking the first bite of fish, and he looks over at, uh, at my wife, Becca, and says, Mommy, I contributed a quarter of this meal with my own two hands. <laughs> I was super proud. So if you see him, wish him a happy birthday. Uh, it's been really special uh, for us this weekend. So today's message... is all about learning to speak up on things that really matter. And in the words of our main character today, if I perish, I perish. An invitation, a proclamation to step on our toes, to allow God to speak wisdom and truth that cuts to the chase in a very black and white manner. Say, God, what would you have for me to learn and live out from this day forward? So let's dig into the story of Esther, the queen full of beauty and that of courage. So there's a backstory to Esther. If you read uh, chapter 20 this week in the story, if if you opened up your Bible and read the the story behind Esther, the whole story is all about God providing a way back for for you and I, for his creation. Ever since the garden where creation sinned against our Heavenly Father. He's always looking to reclaim us back to the original intent. To pull this off, his strategy is to create a nation from scratch called Israel, to deliver the Messiah or Savior who will take away the sins and make us fit a perfect, harmonious life with God once more. This Messiah that we know the rest of the story, right, Jesus, He has come already, will come specifically through the tribe of Judah within Israel. So we have been paying careful attention to their story and how it's been unraveling over the previous weeks and series that we've been in. As we fast forward, we find because of their repeated disobedience to God's laws and plans, they were exiled to Babylon for a period of, longer than I've been alive, 70 years Seventy years to that, that journey through the wilderness, to get to the land flowing with milk and honey, to then be removed from it, to say, your hearts aren't right. You're not quite ready for the plans I have for you. And they were exiled away from the promised land for these 70 years. When the 70 years of discipline from God were up, God opened up a door for Judah to come back home to Jerusalem. And to resume the lives that they once left. To express goals of bringing the world the Messiah. The upper story of God's plan is on track and back on schedule. It's part of the journey last weekend. So it's interesting to note that not all the Jews returned home. So all the Jews out in exile away from the promised land, and they're, they're welcomed back to rebuild the Holy City, but not all of them go back. Why? Ezra chapter 1 tells us a bit of the insight. It says, then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. It's Ezra chapter 1 verse 5. So the group that returned numbered about 50,000 people. 50,000 people on this journey back home after many decades away. A joy-filled occasion. The Bible says that God moved in their hearts to go. That it was a, a, a Holy, Holy Spirit initiative, a, a prompting and urging of God to say, it's time to go back to the place that we're going to make a huge difference in the world. But not everyone had that feeling and sentiment. He didn't move in every Jew's heart to return home. Why? Because he has a story to tell what the people left behind. And boy, what a story that turned out to be. So the year is 479 BC. 479 years until Jesus shows up in the story is that little baby in a manger. Xerxes is the mighty king of the Medo-Persian Empire. And there is a guy who has risen high in the king's court named Haman, who has it out for the Jews living in his town. Why? You know, we looked at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and and the frustrations of the Babylonians, the, the frustrations of the people around the Jews, a gifted people, a wonderful people that just made life work wherever they were, And they were frustrated about their rank, about their um, existence, you know, about how they would take position away from those that were in a bloodline and heritage that believed that they deserved it. But this story runs a bit deeper, perhaps. So scripture doesn't tell us exactly, but Jewish tradition suggests that Haman is the offspring of King Agag, king of the Amalekites. So, the Amalekites were one of the nations who were trying to keep Israel out of the promised land. Remember way back in chapter 10 of the story, the people that wanted to stand in the way and say, we can't let the Jews be there. So, in the story, God asked Saul to completely wipe out the Amalekite people for their extreme evil, things like sacrificing their own children, worshiping pagan gods. This was not a good thing, and God wanted to put a stop to it. And they were trying to stop Israel from entering the land of Canaan. So Saul did wipe out all the people, saving the king. Now, years later, the king's offspring is back at it again, and this time with a huge grudge against God's people. Haman uses his position to get the king to sign an irrevocable decree. Because the king, if he signs something and admitted wrongdoing, he lost credibility. So everything that was declared by the king was set in stone. He wouldn't revoke it for saving face amongst the people in which he ruled. So it was an irrevocable decree to have all the Jews executed on one day. The people throughout the 127 provinces of the empire are given permission to kill a Jewish family and take all of their possessions legally. Legally. This was okayed. This was declared that this was going to be acceptable to do amongst the empire. The date for this horrific event is set for Adar 13 on the Jewish calendar, which at the time would have been 11 months away. 11 months to decide, what do we do? That's the end of a people. That is absolute genocide of God's people. If you were in the know of this, you probably began to worry. So what Haman doesn't know is that Xerxes' queen, Esther, she's Jewish. She kept this little fact to herself when she became the queen because of her cousin Mordecai, who raised her recommended she conceal her heritage. Don't let the cat out of the bag just yet. Three months into this decree, with only nine months to go, Mordecai sends word to Esther that she must go before the king and plead for mercy for her people before it's too late. Esther reminds her cousin Mordecai that it's not that simple of a thing to pull off. So if you want to look into the story, Esther 4, beginning in verse 11, says all the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned the king has but one law, that they both be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. 30 days. No contact, no invitation, and now the prompting to save her people, to say we, we must make a change. We must make an exception. We have to do something. The queen had to be summoned by the king. If she entered into his presence without being summoned, she would be punished, be stripped of her crown, or even be executed. So there was a chance that the king would accept you. He would receive you into his presence. So if so, he would signify by extending this gold scepter towards you. Seems a bit ridiculous, right? Got, any, any guy, any husband here have a gold scepter? <laughs> I hope not, right? It just seems so bizarre of the authority of human life and, and, and leadership and a role that he played in society that his own queen couldn't even approach his presence. Mordecai, Esther's cousin, sends this response back to her. Do not think that because you are, the king's, you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Talking about the impending death on all the people. That to eradicate an ethnic group, to eradicate a people, you couldn't leave anyone left standing, right? You had to get rid of them all. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. What's he saying? He's saying this, Esther, you have not come to this place of immense influence by accident. Could it be that God placed you here in advance for this very purpose? This very stance to save your people. I don't know about you, but that's a lot of pressure. Your entire race, your entire lineage, the people that you identify with as family, brother, sister, all that weight is now on your shoulders. That's intense. So Esther has a decision to make, and here's her response. Esther chapter 4, verse 16, go. Gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law and if I perish, I perish. So after three days of fasting, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace. The king was sitting on his throne, and he saw Esther. And he holds out his golden scepter, and Esther approached and touched the tip. And as a result, the Jews were saved. Even to this day, the to to commemorate this event and celebration called the Feast of Purim. Once again, we see God intervening from the upper story to take what looks like an absolute disaster, the wiping out of his people, God's chosen people in the lower story. God intervenes in a wonderful and miraculous way to advance his ultimate theme, the redemption of humanity. The reclaiming of his creation back to him. So, what can we learn from this story? What can we apply today in our very own lives? And I want to share some of those thoughts with you. So, the first thought that I ponder in reading Esther's story is that God has placed you, you and I, in a position of influence. You are placed in a position of influence. Acts chapter 17, verse 26, tells us that God appointed the, this exact time in history and this exact place for you to live. He has given you a sphere of influence already that surrounds you day in and day out. For some of you, he's preparing you for that place, and it's often preceded by a very difficult season to make you tough and strong and to learn to dig deep into a relationship with Christ. This is what God did in David's story. Do you remember? He was king, and it was all peachy and an easy road to get there? No, it was horrible. He was tried. He was tested. He was ridiculed. He was threatened to one day sit on the throne as a king of God's chosen people. His influence was limited to the small flock of his dad's sheep in Bethlehem. But God had in mind for him to be the shepherd or the king of Israel. To prepare him, he sent him on the run from King Saul for 14 years to mature him, his attitude, his character, his trust in his heavenly father. For some of you, you're still in preparation for your greatest position of influence. And I want to encourage you, prepare well. Let every day be a new part of the journey. That you're a little bit different today than you were yesterday. And when you look back on yesterday, you say, man, God, you were good. And you're growing me into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. Some of you are students. I know most of our kids are out of the room, but we have some high schoolers and, and uni students in here now. And you're going to schools that are much darker than the era that I went to school in the 80s and 90s. Different pressures, different challenges that you face day in and day out. And the reality is you walk through your school grounds. If you took a, an assessment, if you, if you looked around, there's plenty of Hammonds everywhere that surround you people that don't like you people that don't want blessings in your life people that don't want you to succeed and sometimes people that wish they just never had to see you again it's reality of life some of you are teachers administrators managers some of us are parents moms and dads and we have this unbelievable influence over one or more little humans that will determine the trajectory of their lives, that we're nurturing, we're caring, we're passing on traditions, history, everything about us to them to release them one day to make their own decisions in life. One of the most challenging things that we'll ever have to do. For some, it's your influence at work. What do you do for work? There might be a few Hammonds there in the office place, a few people overseeing you, a few people that you rub shoulders with. For me, I'm a pastor. We're on the fishing boat on Friday and someone asked me, so what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. They said, so is that all you do? Oh, and that was the extent of our conversation. (laughs) Back to watching my son catch fish while I donated to the bottom of the ocean. So daily I ask, Lord, how do you want me to use the position of influence you've called me to? It's not a call to take lightly. You know that, um, I'm not making your Kiwi savers grow. I'm not um, uh, promoting you up the corporate ladder in your jobs. But there's a role of pastor to shepherd people, to an understanding of who Jesus is, how much the sacrifice on the cross meant that eternity would be changed for you and I. I can't think of one of the better opportunities of influence to donate and contribute my life to an amazing privilege. So God tells us that if we are faithful with a little bit of influence, he'll likely expand it to get bigger and bigger. So here's two things that we must get right, church. Two things that we must take to heart. The first thing that I've learned, and I've learned the hard way sometimes, is you must know when to keep your mouth shut. Do you know the saying, just because you think it doesn't mean you should say it? Stating the truth changes eternity for people. Oftentimes, sharing our opinion hurts the people around us. I think that's an important distinction that we have to remember. We need to learn when it is appropriate to keep our mouths shut. In matters of preference... If you're taking notes, Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. The Bible teaches that people are weak people when they confuse truth for preference and push their preference on others as though it were truth. A mature, strong person knows the difference. And as Christ followers, we ought to know the difference. To people who won't listen, like in Matthew 7, 6, A seminary professor was once invited to debate an atheist. He asked the man if he was willing to change his position if convinced, and the man simply responded, No, I will never change. So the professor declined the invitation. So whenever I'm talking with someone who clearly is unwilling to listen or change their view, I try to do what Jesus taught. Don't cast pearls before swine. Pretty bold statement. Or how about when you're angry? Proverbs chapter 15 verse 1 or James chapter 1 verse 19. Speaking up when you are angry in spirit always creates a bigger mess than what you started with. True. Amen? Agree? Pretty tough. Proverbs teaches a soft answer turns away wrath. So parents, when we discipline our children, when we discipline our children, when we're in the heat of the moment and angry, it undermines the character of your leadership. To where often we need to take a step back, we need to bite our tongues for a moment and tell them that we're going to talk about this in the very near future. Go to your prayer closet and get yourself in the right frame of mind for the sake of your child and then approach them with truth and grace and above all else that they never question that we love them more than anything in the world. A calm, loving, determined soul unnerves the child and respect is granted and well earned. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 1 through 5. Judging someone's motive. Jesus said we shouldn't go around judging people. Church people and extremely politically left people are often the worst at this. One of the biggest mistakes people make is pretending you're an expert on the motives behind why a person did what they did. That we try to justify it or define the action. When people did this to the Apostle Paul, and in 1 Corinthians, he responded by saying, and I paraphrase, that's interesting that you know the motives behind what I do, because I'm not completely sure that's what my motives even are. Only the Lord knows for sure, and he will one day reveal that to me. Paul. There's a story of a guy in an airport waiting room whose kids were being obnoxious, but he was absolutely oblivious. Do you get the scene? I think all of us have probably been to airports and we've probably witnessed this and hopefully it wasn't me with my own children, right? Sometimes airports bring out the worst in people. And when someone said something to him about getting his kids under control, he apologized and said they were just returning from burying their mother. Ouch. The Christian response to someone having difficulty should not be to judge, but rather to seek to understand and to pray for the individual and to offer help with the children, to meet needs in a loving, tender way. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3, when you don't know what you're talking about. You don't want to be known as the guy or gal who thinks they know it all, have all the answers, a legend in your own mind. We're all ignorant at something. Maybe we don't know how to talk cars. Maybe we don't know how to talk video games with the grandkids. Maybe we don't know how to embrace technological change and advancement. Maybe we're not poets. Maybe we're not musicians. There's something in your life that you just simply can't be an expert on. I know a lot of things that I'm clueless on. And it's okay. It's okay to not have all the answers. I remember the day, now years ago, that I gave myself permission to say, I don't know, what do you think? Inviting other people's input into my life. And it turns out that people like to be involved in those conversations. They like that it's a two-way conversation, learning from one another and not just me telling people what I know. So we've all been given a position of influence by God and we need to know when to keep our mouth shut. But we also need to know when it is time to speak up. And this is very important. So maybe you don't know this, but we live in a PC society that everything is politically correct. How do you actually speak in a public forum without offending someone. And this is a great concern of people in the public eye. I can't imagine, Lord, please never call me to a political position at all. It would terrify me. Or would it? Know when to speak up. Some of you may know that... Um, Quite a few years ago, I was really struggling with my voice, and I still have some scar tissue in my vocal cords from a surgery that I had, and it makes speaking really difficult at times. But there was years that I struggled with constant hoarseness, a high-pitched voice, and I would lose my voice at the drop of a hat. And we were living in Papua New Guinea, and every Monday I would have to lecture for four hours at the Bible College. I had classes throughout the day, And at the end of four hours, by the time I got home to my family, I couldn't speak much louder than this. Because my voice would be gone. It would be shot. And it'd take probably two, three days to recover. And it was misdiagnosis after misdiagnosis after misdiagnosis at the doctor's office for years and we moved back to the States from Papua New Guinea and I thought, man, if, if I'm gonna pastor a church or if I'm gonna be lecturing, I need to see what I can do to regain confidence in my voice once again, to to find the strength in my voice once more. And I finally just bypassed the GP. I went straight to a specialist and found out that somewhere along the line I had herniated a vocal cord. They said, It's like a guitar. The further you go down playing the guitar, the higher pitched it goes. I was using about half my vocal cords. So I was a little bit higher sounding, still couldn't sing, and uh, I struggled. I struggled with my voice. And I had surgery, and after the surgery I was told, you can't even whisper for seven days. (laughs) What? What? Seven days of mom and dad, my wife, my kids poking fun at me, asking me questions, waiting for my response. You could say our home was very quiet those seven days, because I couldn't talk. I couldn't say a word. And thankfully, the rest of the story is I got my voice back. But I go back to those seven days where I couldn't speak, and don't we feel in times and moments in our lives, culture, and society, the political correctness of how we interact with the people around us, that we share that same sentiment. That the crowd or the, the thermostat of weighing or the, the balancing scale of political correctedness silences us. That we're sitting there and we feel, I don't have a voice. I just can't say anything. And we're silenced. Oftentimes I feel muted. Depending on the context in which I am in. And while I don't want to be needlessly offensive. Or try to use legalism to lead people to Christ. Some things just have to be said. There's a time to speak. And a time to be silent. And if I perish... perish. A bold proclamation. So there are issues that God invites us to speak up on. Psalm 82 verses 3 through 4 says, defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So this passage is teaching us that God wants his followers to speak up for those who do not have a voice, those who are silenced domestic violence, would you be shocked that once the most prevalent crimes in our community, other than driving violations, speeding, and running red lights, and all this, that one of the most prevalent crimes is domestic violence? It's true, and it's not okay. God wants us to be aware, and he wants us to speak up for it. How about the unborn? Unborn. Well, I don't want to heap any more guilt on people who have already gone there and done that, as if there's no forgiveness available in Christ. But we must say something about the voiceless unborn. Mothers are the most amazing people on the planet, and the depth of their love is great. So when we live in a society where many mothers are no longer protecting the lives of their children, we're in deep trouble. The majority of abortions are not amongst the poor, but the wealthy. And to this, the Christian community is not exempt or innocent. And we must speak up and value life. The refugee. The community in which we moved back to New Zealand from, we had 12,000 people in our community. Between five and 6,000 of the people in our hometown of Huron, South Dakota, were refugees. Refugees from Myanmar, the Karen people that were living in refugee camps in Thailand, looking for places out of the refugee camps to now reclaim and say, this is home. So right out of the refugee camps in Thailand, they moved to Huron, South Dakota, sometimes when it was minus minus 20 degrees Celsius in the middle of winter, with jandals, shorts, and a t-shirt with holes in it. And that's all that belonged. And they walked out proudly with huge smiles on their faces, as people said, welcome home. It was a beautiful story. A beautiful story about a community wrapping around of saying, it's not you and us, it's, it's all of us. Together in this once dying community, rural community in the middle of nowhere in the state of South Dakota, is now a thriving community of one of the most uh, multicultural places in the entire state of South Dakota. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful picture of life together and knowing that we are better together. So, what are we to think about immigration, refugees? How many of us would be bold enough to say, if it is in the Bible, it's good enough for me, and we'll pay attention to it. Here's nine verses in the Bible that explicitly say followers of God should take in refugees. So, if you're taking notes, Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19 verses 33 through four, 40, 34, excuse me, Leviticus 1.19, 9 through 10, Deuteronomy chapter 10 verses 18 through 19, Ezekiel 16.49, Exodus 23.9, Malachi 3.5, 1 Kings chapter 8 verses 41 through 44, Job 31.32, Matthew 25 verses 25 through 36. The scriptures have a lot to say about the topic. So let's pause and look at one of them if you will, Leviticus chapter nineteen, verses thirty-three and thirty-four. When a foreigner resides amongst you, amongst you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for if you were for you were foreigners in Egypt. Christians have to stand up about immigration and refugees. But few issues are one-dimensional. God also grants rights and responsibilities to government leaders, Romans 13, 1-7. So it is right for them to develop policies and laws for legal immigration and to protect the borders. If we undermine the law, where does the lawlessness stop? As a smart Christian, you do not have to support one truth at the expense of another. Both are true and right. And these dual truths call for Christians to be sophisticated thinkers. Christians need to support refugees coming into their countries and be active in ministering to them. But Christians also need to comply with the laws regarding immigration and to support the lawmakers who are looking for appropriate ways to protect the citizens. Interestingly enough, next week we're looking at the story of Nehemiah whom God called to build a wall around Jerusalem to protect the residents of Jerusalem. Christians need to be sophisticated thinkers and rise above political parties and positions and support the whole truth of God at the same time. When I was in high school, and I'm constantly reminded that that was some time ago now, I had just become a Christian and I witnessed a lot of the halls a lot of things that would happen in the halls at my school. Often everything in my Christian spirit said, stand up for that. Put that person in their place. And I often didn't. And there's a lot of regrets from that time as a newfound Christian believer in my later teenage years. So perhaps my popularity was too precious or my personal convictions not quite strong enough at the time. I wish I would have had courage like Esther did to decide to stand for what was right and true. And if I perish, and most certainly someday I will, then I perish. So to wrap things up this morning, I want to ask you, what position of influence has God given you right now, today, In your own life. What does he want you to say? I say to you what Mordecai said to Esther. Esther chapter 4 verse 14. And who knows but that you have come to your position for such a time as this. As the worship team comes up to lead us, we're going to have a moment of engaging prayer. There might be some needs, some concerns, some things that are heavy on your heart this morning that you just want to bring before the Lord and the family of God to just say, will you pray for me? Will will you lift me up and support me as a prayer warrior to fill in the gaps for many needs and concerns that weigh heavy on all of our shoulders? Maybe you want to come and just pray for someone that God's put on your heart. Or maybe something from this morning is really challenging to you of saying, you know what, maybe I speak far too often that I'm, I'm the person that's an expert on all things and I need to learn to shut my mouth. Or maybe you're feeling that life has just silenced you completely and you need God to help you find your voice once again. Because the world needs to hear God-fearing believers, balancing grace and truth, every day in the world around us, because it truly does make a difference for eternity. This prayer time's for you.